Join Global Gene September 18th and 20th in San Diego for the 2019 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit as the largest gathering of rare disease patients, caregivers, thought leaders, and other rare disease stakeholders in the world, the summit is an unparalleled opportunity to forge meaningful connections with other rare advocates and take home actionable strategies and tools to accelerate change. To learn more or to register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash PA summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash PA summit with the P, A, and S in Summit, all uppercase. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Nancy Patterson was diagnosed 32 years ago with Graves' disease, a rare autoimmune condition that causes the thyroid to become overactive and can lead to a range of health complications. Patterson, a practicing mental health counselor, founded the Graves' Disease and Thyroid Foundation, which she led for nearly 20 years. In her counseling role, she's worked with patients and families across the country and has been a proponent of the important role support groups can play in healing and educating people, particularly in a condition where patients are otherwise unlikely to meet others with the same disease. We spoke to Patterson about Graves' disease her own journey as a patient and advocate, and the benefits support groups can provide. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Hello, how are you? Glad to be here. We're going to talk about Graves' disease, your work as a rare disease advocate, and the important role support groups play in improving the lives of people with rare diseases. Let's start with Graves' disease itself, though. For people not familiar with the condition, what is it, how does it manifest itself, and, and how does it progress? Well, it, Graves' disease is an autoimmune disease. It's an overactive thyroid. And what happens is your body starts making antibodies that beat up on your thyroid and tell it to make more hormones. So you get very hyperactive, and they call it hyperthyroidism. Your thyroid controls and or contributes to almost, I can't think of anything in your body it doesn't have anything to do with. So the symptoms are heart, skin, lungs, energy, thinking. Um, That's all I can think of right now, but there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole page Lots of emotional emotional effects that you kind of go, where'd that come from? Uh, how is Graves' disease diagnosed today? You're hearing a long pause <laughs> because it's still, it's still relatively difficult to diagnose because it is a rare disorder. And unless you work with it a lot, doctors... There's so many other things that have similar symptoms 
that you go to first. If they would move a TSH, which is a thyroid-stimulating hormone test, from the right-hand side of the lab page to the left hand, when they check complete blood work, you'd know immediately. But you have to you have to think about selecting it and going over to the other side of the page to have it done. But it's the way it's actually diagnosed is with a thyroid stimulating hormone test. It tells you it's really really high, and then they can can discuss treatment. But again, if you if you don't work with it a lot, it is not even near the first thing you think of. And is that just a, a simple blood test? It's a very simple blood test, yes. Well, how is the condition treated today, and, and how good are the treatment options? It's treated essentially the same that it was when, when I was diagnosed over 30 years ago. We know more about the treatments now. <clears throat> There's really only three treatments. You've got to slow up the thyroid somehow. So you can either take medication that either blocks its production or blocks its conversion. You can have radioactive iodine that is very specific to your thyroid, which essentially deletes your thyroid you know, fairly quickly. Or you can have surgery and have it removed. 30 years ago, literally what my doctor told me was that there was medication that could give me leukemia. Now, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I know the difference between leukemia and leukopenia, but he didn't say that word. He said surgery, they could cut my vocal cords, and I might not be able to talk, or I could have radioactive iodine, which was 100% safe. What I... I have to forgive him now because what I learned several years ago was that surgery was a very basic, um, they couldn't see what they were doing, and they very well might cut your vocal cords. Now they have very precise instruments that tell the doctor exactly where he is. So he was correct in that. There are some bad side effects to some of the antithyroid drugs, but you keep track of it and you stay on top of it. And what they thought about radioactive iodine, they were just learning that it could exacerbate thyroid eye disease, but very, very few people knew that. So he, he told me what he thought was the truth. Nowadays, hopefully, they, they, they can give you a little bit different approach to the same three treatments. Actually, a, be- a much better approach to the same three treatments. You mentioned you were diagnosed 30 years ago. How did you come to get diagnosed? I was driving home from the beach one day, and my heart started pounding in my chest. It, it very much frightened me. I'm a, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I made it home, and then the part of me that had just recently finished my Ph.D., and it was in Mastering Stress, was like, no, it's probably just I'm, I'm too busy and not eating right, not getting enough exercise. But the nurse part won, and I, I did get to a cardiologist probably within about two weeks. I mean, I didn't put it off at all because it was – and it and the, the heart pounding continued. The cardiologist I saw ran 
the appropriate cardiology tests, and he wanted me to wear a heart monitor. Now, nowadays, they're little stick-on things on your chest. Back then, they were the size of a giant cereal box. And rather than say, thank you, sir, I don't think I want to wear that, I just didn't say anything, and I went to another cardiology group. So it was probably six months before they did every cardiac test they could think of, and I was on a um, stress test walker thing and passed out. My heart rate was like 240. And somebody, I guess, pulled a TSH, and I ended up at an endocrinologist who was the one who told me about the three treatments at the time. And so he said radioactive iodine was 100% safe. That was the Wednesday, and Friday I went in and had it. Well, how much progress has there been in working with this condition and recognizing it and treating it since you were first diagnosed? Um, I'm going to sound skeptical. Not a lot. It's still very hard to recognize because, like I said, there are so many illnesses that have many, many, many of the same symptoms in the beginning. And it is a rare disorder, so if you don't have experience in working with it, it's not anywhere near what you first think of. So we're, we're, we're to two things that I think. We're to physician education. I mean, I, I joke with doctors that I know, and I go, were you there the morning they talked about Graves' disease? You know, or do you have a hangover and didn't make it to class that day? And they usually chuckle and go, you know, I don't think I was there that day. But, I mean, it, it just doesn't get a lot of attention. And until very recently, I had a, a physician tell me, whom I, I respect, and he knows a lot about Graves. I was at a meeting, and every, it seemed like everything was about thyroid cancer. There were two workshops on Graves, and I said, what's the deal? He said, Nancy, Graves is not interesting. Now, that's changing, but it, it hasn't had a lot of research. It's, it's not focused on, and again, it's rare, so unless you're seeing a doctor that, that sees a lot of it, they don't, they don't recognize it. Shortly after getting diagnosed, you founded the Graves Disease and Thyroid Foundation in, in 1990. Why did you start the organization? <laughs> I'm chuckling. Um, it was, I had, I had heard of, of, the, of the disease, but I never met anybody with it. I, and, and I was running a couple of different kinds of support groups at the time. And so I asked my doctors, where are the support groups? And they said, well, there aren't any. I said, what do you mean there's not any? He said, well, there just, there just aren't. And I said, well, we're going to fix that. You know, will you help me? And they said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll lend you our, our reputation and our knowledge and our, we'll talk it up with other doctors. And, and I was raised in, a, in an environment that if you – wanted something and it was reasonable, you went after it. I just I mean it couldn't I couldn't imagine not doing something. And since I didn't know anybody else that could do something, I did it myself. It's also a case of be careful what you pray for. And and what what were you hoping to accomplish by creating the organization? 
Okay, again, go back to over 30 years ago. I don't even think the Internet had been invented. It came along pretty shortly. But the only way to to talk to anybody was face-to-face. You know, support groups met in a room. They talked to each other. And my my goal was a support group in every major city in the country. We never We never got that far because one of the things that happened was people would would come to a support group and come regularly and then they would get better and so they quit coming so it was it was kind of kind of self destroying not destroying but it it would wind down if you couldn't get, if you didn't keep getting new members we could have uh, would have maybe a couple of doctors in a city who would give a a broad open open forum and there'd be 150 people there and then it'd say okay we're going to start a support group and we're going to meet once a month here at this hospital whatever and, and maybe 50 people would come and it would just go down and go down and go down because they were getting the support they were getting the information and they were they were adjusting their lives to to have some quality of life and keep on going you had to really push to say, you know, some of you please keep coming to help other, you know, help new people. And then now there's so much social media that it's in some respects easy to get support, but it's not face-to-face support. It's it's you know one degree separation, or maybe even more than one degree. But there's there's a lot more support than there used to be. People tend to think about rare diseases in terms of their physical manifestations and, and often don't give a lot of consideration to the effects of a condition on the psychological and emotional well-being of a person. How big a role does this play in the lives of people with Graves' disease? It's, that's, that's a very interesting question probably one of my favorite topics is, is psychological implications. But let me go back a minute. Physically, what Graves looks like is you're, you're kind of shaky. You're talking real fast. You're, um, sometimes we have been described as brusque. And, and you know it as a patient. It's like, what am I, what am I acting this way for? And that's not psychological. That's your, your thyroid hormones, which eventually turns into adrenaline. So you're on this 24-hour adrenaline rush. And if you can imagine, like, having a fender bender and getting out of your car and how, you know, I mean, you're shaking, your heart's beating, you're, you know, what's going on? You don't look sick. So when you when you begin to to get the physiology balanced, you look okay, unless and we'll talk about thyroid eye disease in a minute. But there are a lot of emotional components that go with it that you get tired of talking about. People get tired of hearing it. 
again, which gets me back to support groups, if you have a support group, there's a place you can go and talk about it and feel accepted. But what I've heard so many times is, you know, well, you look just fine. You don't look sick. And it's, it's very, very frustrating. Um, early on, I'll give you a, an example. Probably the first year, I got to where I couldn't, I could read my grocery list, but when I got to the grocery store, it just didn't make any sense. I made flashcards. I would cut the label off a can of peas and tape it to an index card, and I went with my flashcards to the grocery store. Now, I don't have to do that anymore, but that was very, very real. And I didn't want to tell people that, you know, I, I just can't connect my thoughts and my actions. And I'm still working and I'm still hanging in there, but there were things that were very, very difficult. I, I know there are some, in some cases, very f- physical telltale signs of the condition, but as you mentioned, for many people, this can be an invisible disease. How isolating can that be to be sick and, and not have people aware of it? Heavy sigh. You tend, and, and I say you as the collective you, there's some activities that you simply cannot do anymore, so you quit doing them, and that was part of your, your social life. So, you, uh, example, you used to be a runner, and you can't do that anymore because your heart's going to pound out of your chest. So you you end up not being around your your athletic friends. You used to be really good at painting, and you're so quivery, you're... Your artwork is is not good anymore, so you end up not being with those. It's there's some things that if you if you have a, a job that doesn't require a lot of interaction, sometimes that's easier than if you're in in a, in a job that is public relations or something. Now, when you get your thyroid levels balanced that 99% of the time fixes that part. You know, if you can't see, well, I mean, because I, I know I was able to get a bigger computer screen and some things like that. You go to HR, but in the beginning, you, you don't have any information. Nobody can tell you anything, and you're just, you're just out there with you know, trying to trying to figure out the unfigure outable. That's a new word. You're a practicing mental health counselor and a, a big advocate for the power of support groups. What's the landscape of support groups for people with Graves disease? Again, it gets back to the doctors that know about it. Let's assume that you're far enough in your diagnosis that you are seeing an endocrinologist. And this is when I make distinctions between, because there's people that get graves and it's kind of like having the flu. It gets diagnosed, it gets treated, life goes on. But there are 
the, the people with complicated Graves' disease, it doesn't treat easily, and they don't respond quickly. And if they're not with a doctor that treats a lot of those cases, they're going to have more problems than if they're with a doctor who sees a, a whole lot of Graves' disease patients and knows that there's sort of degrees of Graves, and they're the ones going to tell them. Once in a while, you, there was... Many years ago, there was an article in Reader's Digest about Graves' disease. And Reader's Digest has a humongous, you know, people that read it. And they called me, and they were trying to explain to me. They they could figure out how many people would see this and respond to it. And (laughs) so at the end of the article, it said, if you'd like more information, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the Graves Disease Foundation in Jacksonville. Mail was pouring through my mail slot in the, at the front door. Got like 3,000 letters. And I was, I was totally overwhelmed. And I, I called my daughter who is, works in, in corporate stuff, and she said, well, you know, have you opened them? I said, open them. Uh, that's a good idea, Kathy. <laughs> So then I got somebody from the local volunteer Jacksonville to come, and we opened them, and we divided up who just wanted information, but probably 80% of them contained four-page handwritten letters about their Graves' disease. And so that that added to our, our database and our mailing list, and we could send them newsletters. And But your question was, how do, how do they get to a support group? And they usually find out about it through their physician. Now, what impact do these support groups have on patients and their quality of lives? Well, I'd like to think they have a, a very positive effect. If you, can, if you can understand, kind of first of all, that you're not going to die if you're, if you're under the care of a physician and, and you're being treated, because that's a pretty popular, you know, I'm going to die of this. That's one, one good thing. You, be, you begin to make adjustments to your life. This is your, there's a, a new expression out called your new normal. And some of this is not going away, and some of it you can incorporate and make your life normal again. Like I can remember, I, was, I, I stayed in my mental health practice, and it was, it was full. But, and we haven't gotten to thyroid eye disease yet, but I would tell my clients, my eyes were, were quite bulgy. And sometimes I would look angry or startled or, and I said, you can't trust my eyes. You can trust my tone of voice. But, you know, if you see me looking funny, ask me. Because usually I'll tell you, you know, like, that's really bad. So being being able to to just go, this is the way it is now. And I, I never had anybody leave the practice because of that. I did have somebody, boy, you should see what you look like now. And I'd try to, you know, bling my eyes and straighten them out. But you just you just learn to make adjustments, like you would learn to make adjustments if you had any other rare rare disorder or common disorder. 
Well, explain for a moment. You know, what, life, what is, life changes all the time, and you have to adjust to it. Explain for a moment, what is thyroid eye disease? Thyroid eye disease has, is an autoimmune disease. Your body produces antibodies that are very, very similar to the antibodies that are beaten up on your thyroid gland, but they're a little bit different, and they only go to the tissues behind your eyes, mainly the four muscles that move your eyes up and down and sideways, these antibodies start beating up on them and they, they swell up. They, so it, it's an autoimmune disease and, and your, your eye socket is, is hard. So if your muscles are swelling, there's only so, so much that they can fill up so they start pushing forward. There's a hot phase, an active phase that can last, they usually tell you a year to 18 months. For some people, it's, it's longer than that. But one of two things will happen. Either the muscles will shrink back down, and they, they look like noodles most of the time, just those flat noodles. But if they don't if they don't settle down they turn to scar tissue and so your eyes are permanently bigger than your eye sockets it usually happens generally at the same time you're diagnosed with graves but i've talked to people that say i've had thyroid eye disease for 20 years and now they're telling me i've got graves or i had graves 20 years ago and now they're telling me i've got thyroid eye disease but that those are exceptions much more than the rule. And going back to the support groups, what's the best way someone can go about finding one? You know, probably now the best way is a, a new group that's on the Internet called OneGravesVoice.com. They have got information, they've got messaging boards, they've got um, just just some they've they've kind of collected all all the the support and information into one spot so that you can go there and at least find out what else is available. And again it's called onegravesvoice.com and that's only been out less than a year. They've been working on it for a long time, but it's it's actually online and functioning now. Nancy Patterson, founder <laughs> and former executive director of the Graves Disease and Thyroid Foundation. Nancy, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. 
drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.